If you turn to Micah chapter 5, we're coming up on the last part of which is of what is generally Micah's second oracle in the book. He, Micah has spent chapters 1 and 2, generally speaking, to the northern kingdom of Israel. He spent chapters 3, 4, and 5, uh, and which we're ending on in chapter 5, speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah. In chapters 6 and 7, he's really going to hone in on the southern capital of Jerusalem. But there have been, of course, <clears throat> applications for all people. And Micah usually spins, or speaks in his oracles, of first judgment, and then he follows that up with glimpses of the messianic hope. And, and when we talk about the messianic hope, we of course mean the Messiah, Jesus, and Micah usually unveils what the age of the Messiah, that is what Jesus means and does for his people, uh, the people of God, all those who have confessed and professed Jesus as both Savior from sin and Lord over our lives. We're finishing the last part of Micah's messianic hope in his second oracle today. You know, among Reformed circles, that is Christians and predominantly Presbyterian, some Baptists and Reformed, uh, maybe Christian churches, descending from Martin Luther, the guy who was trying to reform the Catholic Church but ended up having to break away, they have a phrase. A semper reformanda, probably butchered that uh, Latin, but it means reformed and always reforming or, or just always reforming. And the idea is that the church, or excuse me, the idea is that God is still reforming us. He's still purifying us. He's still peeling back the layers of sin and corruption and purifying us, trying to make us more uh, ad fontes, which is another phrase commonly used among reformers, which means to the sources. God's always trying us to conform us to the sources of the Bible, the sources of Christ, the sources of what His Spirit is, maybe what those first Christians looked like, ad fontes. With that in your mind, I invite you to stand in Micah chapter 5, and we will find the Messianic hope in the second oracle ends with God purifying or reforming His people. I hope you'll see that, and we'll uncover that as we walk through it today. We'll be reading... Micah chapter 5, verses 4 through 15. It begins saying, He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. <clears throat> the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Then the remnant of Jacob 
will be among the nations, among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through. And there is no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and your enemies will be destroyed. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration. I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove sorceries from your hands, and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will not bow down again to the work of your hands. I will pull off the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. Father, it is my desperate hope this morning that you would do what you promised to do here. Father, you say that you, your people, will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. That is, I pray that you would do that this morning, that you are not contained by what we can and can't do. You are not held back by our sins, but rather I pray that you would come like the dew, that you don't need to ask for our permission, but rather that you would come because you long to fill us with your truth, you long to sanctify us with your word, and I pray that you would do a, a purifying and reforming act of grace in the hearts and ears and the minds of all those who listen to these words me foremost, I pray that you would have complete and total freedom to pour out over us. Father, remove from us all the things that we think fulfill us, and that we think sustain us, and show us that you alone are to be desired to be our sustaining power. And Father, please be that sustaining power. Please remove from our minds and our hearts any other desires for sin to be in your stead. Have your way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We as Christians are to be communal. We're supposed to be with and for each other. Christ says that where two or more or two or three are gathered in his name, there he is with them. And I'm not saying that we can't be, that it is impossible to be alone or solitary with Christ. But, for the most part, Christ had twelve apostles. He had three in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Paul says the body of Christ needs each other. The hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And Jesus says, you are my friends, plural, if you do what I command, and his command is to love God and love each other. And I believe it was John Wesley who said something along the lines of that the Christian religion is not a solitary religion. We weren't made to be hermits aloof from people. The church is to be a community. And as a church community right now, in this day and age, globally, sometimes it looks a little scary. It looks scary in our nation. It looks scarier sometimes in other nations where Christians are being persecuted rather overtly. 
I don't know about you, but I've noticed how timely our study in Micah has been. We've, we've run into some rather timely prophecies of judgment concerning the corruption and the injustices of leadership. We, we think about the pro and fanicide. We think about leaders in our nation that have been steering or seem to be trying their hardest to continue to steer the nation further away from Christ. Not saying that this nation was ever 100% God's chosen people or whatever. But it just seems like any, any hint of Christian influence seems to be slowly disintegrating, if not already disintegrating. Some Christians are politically apathetic and will say, well, it's not surprising and that's not our domain. Let's just be doing our thing. And then other Christians will lean the other way and say, well, we might be able to have some influence over the politics so long as our nation tries to keep the idea of being a government by the people, for the people. And, and regardless of what we think about our needing to be separate from the government, the government will still have say over our lives and the very real implications of our practicing what we believe or what we say or what we know to be wrong and right. And so as long as we have um, the opportunity to have a say, let us have a say. And I feel it's in that tension that the Lord speaks. That Micah speaks of God reforming His people. And I have a, a minor spoiler alert before the end of the sermon today. Quite simply put, God wins. At the end of the day, God wins. That's not to be questioned. That's not. There's no tension surrounding that. When God reforms His people... I see three primary facets of reformation in this text that as if by some magical design or divine coincidence or maybe just my clever witty thinking, it all starts with the letter I. Micah outlines in these verses the invincibility that comes with reformation. He talks about the inevitability of reformation and finally the infliction of reformation, the invincibility the inevitability, and the infliction of reparation. Immediately prior to our text, what we talked about last week, God revealed through Micah the coming of Jesus. Uh, this was the verse quoted by the scribes in Jerusalem when the wise men came seeking Jesus, and the scribes said that they would find the promised Messiah, that is Jesus, in Bethlehem, because God says through Micah here, Micah 5, verse 2, uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Now, Micah was prophesying upwards of 700 years prior to the coming of Christ. And that is depicted, that, that length of time is depicted, I should say, in the very next verse, in verse 3, it says, Therefore he will abandon them, God will abandon them, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. So in the time of Micah, Israel was being threatened by Assyria, but then would be taken captive by Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. So God would abandon Israel to suffer those conquests, 
In all of this, though, Israel is suffering, they're suffering like a woman in labor, because a time is coming when pregnant Israel will give birth to the Messiah who will receive the rest of his brothers. That is, God's people made up of Israel and the world will join in this triumphant messianic age. And his coming brings with it the invincibility of reformation. We see that in verses 4 through 6 here. It says, He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh. In this majestic name of Yahweh his God, they will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod with a drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Whether it be politically speaking, or religiously speaking, or spiritually speaking, there is only one ruler fit enough to rule and lead us invincibly. His name is Jesus. There is only one person who fits this description. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of Yahweh his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. This ruler will shepherd the flock. It's interesting. As I mentioned here uh, for, for brief review at the beginning of the sermon, that Micah gives at least three glimpses of the Messianic age. And in the very first glimpse, in the first oracle, there was just two verses at the end of Micah chapter 2. And the voice that was written in was definitely the voice of God, thus saith the Lord. And so Micah 2, 12 through 13, we heard God saying, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its fold. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and lead by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. Verse 12, generally speaking, God is saying, I will be their shepherd, right? Bring them in like sheep in a pen, a flock in the middle of its fold. And then finally at the end of verse 13, he flat, flat out states that the king is none other than the Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh there, as their leader. I will be their shepherd. But in this latest messianic prophecy, Micah is saying that the Lord will have an earthly beginning in Bethlehem. The Lord will be flesh, and then he will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, the majestic name of Yahweh his God. And when you and I are shepherded, and shepherded being more than just led, but also being nourished, that's what shepherds do. And when the Lord our God is shepherd, we will live securely, and we will live in peace. So it tells us the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And when God 
is our peace, that means our peace is sourced in Him, from Him. That's a good thing because God is holy, which means He's set apart and He's separate from the world. Here's what this means practically. Social persecution, infanticide, political divide, unrest. I would say God is concerned by all that, but He's not thrown by it. He's not scratching his head, well, what to do about this? He's not pacing back and forth, coming up with the right plan. He wasn't thrown. He wasn't unsettled or blown away by it. And our peace is in that God, not in our circumstances. Our peace is in the security that God gives, not the insecurity that the world gives to God's people. If God is for us, who is against us, Paul asks. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? For I am persuaded, Paul would go on to say, Romans 8, that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when Jesus is the shepherd, who is God in the flesh, shepherding over us, we find all of our security in Him, and all of our peace in Him, and nothing can ever effectively take that away. We are invincible in Him and by Him and through Him. We move from sinner held captive by the world to saint held in the hand of God where nothing can pluck us. We move from slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. The God-man, Jesus is the shepherd and His greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. This is why you and I are here today studying about him right now, reading a book that's over, I don't know what, 2,700 years old. When Christ came and he revealed that he was about to set not only the Israelite free, but a much broader category, the sinner free, he revealed that he is a Savior and Lord for everyone to the ends of the earth. And because Micah is talking about a shepherd and king for the world here and for world ramifications, maybe I'm going to take a little bit of liberty when it comes to the end of our first section here. But it's a liberty shared by other commentators. I'm not saying that uh, we can't all be wrong together. Maybe we are. But Micah says, continuing on in verse 5, when Assyria invades our land, when it marches against our fortresses, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with the drawn blade. So he will rescue us from Assyria when it invades our land, when it marches against our territory. Firstly, we have noted in several of our sermons that Assyria did come to the very gate of Jerusalem only to be miraculously uh, defeated by an angel of God, an angel left Jerusalem, went out, slaughtered all of the army's leaders of Assyria in one bloody night. Assyria did not enter Jerusalem. They failed. However, the prophecy 
talks about Assyria being thwarted by, quote, seven uh, shepherds, even eight leaders of men. Now, this is a Hebraism, a Hebrew phrase, basically meaning a large number. Seven being the perfect number, so it's, it's saying the perfect number, nay, even eight, as in there's going to be more than abundance of shepherds and leaders to fight against Assyria. But again, Assyria's defeat came one fateful night from one of God's angels. And the southern kingdom did not, in turn, go and shepherd or conquer the land of Assyria. Rather, Babylon eventually wiped out Assyria and then Judah and Israel with it. The point is, is I don't believe uh, these verses are talking about, obviously, that fulfillment of Assyria being thwarted. And the liberty I'm going to take is that Assyria, coupled with a reference to Nimrod, are timeless symbols, in my mind, meaning the enemies of God's people. Now, Nimrod is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. You're more than welcome to write that down and look it up later. I'm not going to bring it up. But he's basically the first king of Babylon, and he conquered many lands. And he is introduced in the Bible as, quote, the most powerful man on earth, apparently at that time. So a legendary ruler. And what I'm saying is that taking the fact that Micah is talking about the enemies of God's people at their time, Assyria, and then saying, hey, our ruler is going to lead us to shepherd over the land of Nimrod itself with a drawn blade, as in, we will be the leaders, we will be the kings, I'm saying that Micah is speaking in a prophetic and symbolic and spiritual sense that with our shepherd, with the Messiah from Bethlehem, with the shepherd filled and from Yahweh himself, no enemy can overtake us. Rather, we will be the overtakers. We will take Nimrod's land, the most powerful man on earth. We'll take his land. Do you hear that? Invincible. Friends, in Christ... You are invincible. Don't you ever experience this? I, I experience this in asking for forgiveness all the time. Lord, uh, please don't hold my sins accountable to other people. And I'm reminded over and over and over when God sees me, He doesn't see Kevin. He sees Christ. I'm in Christ. He sees nothing can beat you in Christ. Nothing can ultimately win. Nothing can remove from you what is most precious and what was given to you as a gift from King Jesus himself. Eternal, abundant life. The very sting of death, so tells us Paul, is gone. Death has left, lost its threat over us. Death is just changing planes in Denver from this world to God's presence. But the nation is saying this detestable act is okay. God still wins. But they're promoting that sin and this injustice. And God's got plans, and I'm sure they're going to be effective. Invincible. Invincible. We're going to come back uh, to the mention of these seven, uh, even eight shepherds in verse 5. But for now, let's move on from the invincibility of Reformation to the inevitability of Reformation. Look at verses 7 through 9 again with me. It says, Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Then the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations. 
among many peoples, like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there is no one to rescue them. Your hand will be lifted up against your adversaries, and your enemies will be destroyed. The remnant of Jacob. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that this remnant is at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. Sometimes we look at Paul and say, wow, he's so profound, but at the same time, it's so simple to understand. We just think about it. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elected find it. So the remnant of Jacob, that is God's holy people, is not by works. You and I, or any Jewish person for that matter, have not worked their way to Jesus. Rather, as Paul says elsewhere in Titus 2.11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. And when you or I have recognized and received that grace, we are chosen to be part of the remnant. We become elect. Israel did not find what it was looking for, namely, every single Israelite who has ever tried to work their way to God by keeping the law has failed. But the elect, and the Bible is again clear that the elect consists of all people, Israelite or not, they found it by receiving God's grace as opposed or over his judgment. Does that make sense? So the remnant of Jacob, Micah tells us, will be among many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. Do you hear the, the God-sourced, the God-alone Catalyst in that, the inevitability. You and I and the rest of the elect are among many peoples who are across all the major countries. We are Christians and we are there like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or linger for mankind. That is, as much as you wish you were capable of manipulating or controlling, it still snowed last week. And all of you said, well, if I had my own way, it wouldn't have snowed. In fact, perhaps there would not be any snow on the ground if we all had our own way. Just the same, the dew comes without your or my permission. It leaves just the same. And so it is with God's people, is what Micah is saying. You and I are here in Woodland at this time. In this season, in this era, Paul says in Acts 17, 26, because God has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of where we live. God puts his people in the places he wants, in the times he wants them there. It is inevitable. And if we are doing our part, grace and kindness and opportunities to seek God and to repent will happen. We will cover the earth. We will invade people. What will we do among the people? Micah is so glad that you asked that. He continues in verse 8 that the remnant of Jacob, again, that's us, will be among the nations, be among many peoples. That's just what we covered. We're going to be among them like a lion among animals of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which tramples and tears as it passes through, and there is no one to rescue them. Your hand 
will be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies will be destroyed. Now, some of you good old-fashioned North Idaho, I got a gun, Woodlanders are are just, if you, if you catch up in on the symbols, yeah, I'm a lion, I'm going to tear people to pieces. All my enemies will be destroyed. Can I just say here and now, that humility does not equal defeat. That peacemaking does not mean defensive, nor does it mean surrender. Kindness does not mean weakness. The Bible speaks of God's people as a very formidable people here. It speaks of us as victorious warriors. And we humans are such tangible and what we can see type people that might that because Micah is symbolically talking about us as a lion among sheep and we destroying our enemies, we might be quick to think of violence and weapons, but Paul warns us. Paul urges us to think differently. To be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul pleads with us not to be thinking that we need to take arms against people, but against a much more threatening foe. He says, for our battle, he warns us, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world's powers that, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. And with the Lord, with us being yielded to him, and friends and loyal to him, the reformation of the entire world is inevitable. Your hand, he says, Micah, will be lifted up against your adversaries and all your enemies will be destroyed. It's inevitable. Do you take hope in that today, church? See, the world doesn't win. I know the politics and those people are saying this, and these people are doing that, and those brothers and sisters in Christ are dying, and all your enemies, listen church, all your enemies, all the rulers, all the authorities, all the world powers of this darkness, all the spiritual forces of evil will be destroyed. It is inevitable. It's happening. Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Sounds rather inevitable. Sounds like Jesus knows how it ends. The gates of hell. You know what that means? Gates are a defensive structure, and God's church is at the gates of hell. That means the church has brought the fight to hell's domain. And the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's inevitable. When King Jesus takes his people and his people go to work, it's going to happen. No question. We are invincible in God. Our mission is inevitable with God. But it's not without infliction. Look at verses 10 through 15 with me. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will remove your... Now he is talking to the remnant here. He's talking to the people who are going to be invincible. And he's talking to the people whose mission is inevitable. But he says, I will remove your horses from you and wreck your chariots. 
I will remove the cities of your land and tear down all your fortresses. I will remove the sorceries from your hands, and you will not have any more fortune tellers. I will remove your carved images and sacred pillars from you so that you will not bow down again to the work of your hands. I will pull up the Asherah poles from among you and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me. God is the reformer here, not us. And sometimes we forget, sometimes, I'll just, I'll own it, sometimes I forget that. See, sometimes as a pastor, I can be quick to think, I need to do more. I should do more of this and not as much as that. And I should say these things and call these people. They probably hate me. And, and man, I'm so guilty of a sinner. I'm, I'm disqualified from the ministry and blah, blah, blah. And it's all me, me, me. And I need to remove myself. And it's not, and not to, excuse me, and not to remove myself from obligations, nor to ignore where I do need to grow. But God can get the job done without me. Whenever it comes to me and God, it is not a matter of my ability. My ability plays no part in it. It's a matter of my availability. My availability. God didn't come to Moses because he was such a great speaker or he had a great history and track record of good relations with Hebrews or leadership. God came to Moses because God saw in Moses' heart's availability, which is so much more better than just ability. God did not come to a lowly young shepherd named David because he had performed so well as a king over an entire nation. And no, he was just the grunt of his brothers. But God saw in David's heart availability. But here I am picking on myself because of my abilities or what I consider to be the lack thereof. Here's what I wonder. I wonder that if among you, yep, talking to you people in the views, there are people who have maybe ideas. This ministry would be great in Woodland if only Kevin, or I don't know, if, if only Vince or Dean, or you know, if only someone other than me that could accomplish it. And I don't think that because I'm lazy, but, but I feel like those people are much more equipped than I am. And what if God is laying on your heart something, not because you're able, but because you're available? What if that idea, something for his kingdom, I could care less if Woodland Friends Church is, is stamped on it or not. I don't care. But what if God is giving you desires and passions and then saying, are you available? He's not asking if you're able. He's just asking if you're available. In order to, to get us to that spot of being available, to get me there personally, it's painful, this infliction. God says in order to reform us, he will remove our horses from us and wreck our chariots. He's not, we're not going to have the wherewithal on our lonesome to do a lick of the work he gives us. We're not going to have the manpower. We're not going to have the faculties. Why? Because God is the reformer here and we're just being available. And sometimes he tells us to feed a crowd of thousands with what's in our one lunchbox. Sometimes he tells us to conquer the world for his name's sake, and it starts out with only 11 of us and one guy who was not solid, but was sold the pastor in for some money. 
He will remove the cities of our lands and tear down all of our fortresses. Some of us think that the kingdom starts in the church and the bigger the church, the bigger the numbers and the more ministries. And what if, what if the way God reforms is not in Jerusalem at the temple, rather Jesus puts the condemned sign on that and he says, go out to the villages. Go talk to the nobodies. Go and tell. Stop telling people, come and see. Go and tell. He will remove sorceries from our hands and we will not have any more fortune tellers. He will remove our carved images and sacred pillars from us so that we will not bow down again to the work of our own hands. He will pull up the Asherah poles from among us and demolish our cities. What up in God reforming us? He's moving us from reliance upon seen and telling us to rely on the unseen. Excuse the pun, but this can be very observable in Woodland. Christy and I rack our brains. We try to do barbecues in the summer. We, we have a Thanksgiving dinner, a July 4th dinner. We do a fall festival. And we try to do something for the kids in the summer. And, and you and I are so prone to to wanting altars and landmarks. We want to see a fall festival bring in at least three new folks from the neighborhood, and, and if they're unsaved, wow, somebody being saved at, at Woodland Friends Church of all places. But what if Jesus says the kingdom is not coming in ways that are observable? What if the kingdom is already in the midst of you? What if when God reforms his people, he's in the habit of working in human hearts and minds where nobody can see it? And what if a big building and large numbers, and I gave away 17 Bibles this year, mean little, but what's happened in one sinner who's already professed salvation, but, but what if what's happened in their hearts one, one routine Sunday, and maybe they found victory over that one sin, what if that means the world to God? By all means, give away Bibles. Do pray for conversions. We, we count people because people count. I'm going to have two kids. I'm not going to have three or one. And I'm going to be looking for two kids if I ever lose them in the future. I'm not saying that those aren't important things. But what if we have put numbers and superstition to God's kingdom? What if we re rely on what so-called successful pastors tell us how effective ministry works that we sometimes bow down to the work of our own hands? We've made idols. And God says, when I reform you, it will be me doing the reforming. I'm going to take your manpower, your horses and chariots. I'm going to take your strongholds and, and fortresses, your reliance upon the safety of being a people together instead of winning a people for me. And I'm going to take the world's tools from you because I'm going to be doing the reforming. But simply because God is the reformer and he's the one who makes us invincible and his reformation is inevitable and his reformation causes infliction to those of us being refined in the fires of reformation while God strips all off that we rely upon ourselves so that we simply be available and not just count our abilities and tell him what we can or cannot do. That does not take away the responsibility of the response of the man. Verse 15, God says, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath against the nations that have not obeyed me, says God. God is the reformer here. He is reforming the world. And for those who fight against it, it's ultimately not a good ending. 
because God wins. God wins. He is invincible. He is inevitable, inevitable, and he will inflict fire on everybody. For some it will refine and purify them, and for others they will burn up with every ounce of their rebellious fiber. Some of us, we look around at the state of the global church, and we're worried. Social legislation, persecution, violent and physical persecution, public disdain of Christians or, or things that the Bible says. And it's good to pray for revival. It's good to pray for the lost ones so that they might come. And by God's grace, may they come. But know this, God is reforming the world. He is reforming the church. He is invincible. Friends, in the words of Paul, we are pressured in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Christ reforms us. It brings infliction. And here's why I want to go back to one little statement to weave all of this together. God is invincible. He is inevitable. But he's always in the habit of doing something that I don't quite fathom. He's in the habit of doing the work he wants, done for his kingdom, with sinners like you and me. God could effectively make a perfect world, and nothing and nobody, no power of evil can stop him. Why did he let Satan tempt Adam and Eve? Why does he let evil go unpunished immediately? Because I believe all evil will be punished in the end. And I think it's a part of that love thing that he has for us. If I have a gun to Christy, my wife's head, every waking moment of every day, coercing her to love me and coercing her to do exactly what I would have her to do, nobody would be fooled. That is a tyrannical relationship. Love involves trust that she loves me too. Love involves sacrifice. Love involves submission. And love involves yieldedness. And I believe, excuse me, I, I mean the following with all reverence and respect. I believe God has yielded his will to the world. There are things that take place that God has the ability to change, yet he yields his immediate influence and his immediate interaction out of his own sovereignty because he loves us and he loves the world and he wants all to be saved and he has the power to bring that about yesterday. But he doesn't use that power because like love, he voluntarily loves us and he wants us to voluntarily love him back. And so when the forces of evil try to attack God and his kingdom, God says through Micah, we will raise against it seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. And that is where you and I are involved. God is the reformer here. He is invincible. His reforming is inevitable, but his reforming brings infliction because God wants his invincible, inevitable reformation to be accomplished by him working through us. Do you hear that? God becomes man through Jesus. Witnesses, ministers, accomplish salvation. And then he tells 11 men, your turn. I'm going home, but I'm leaving my spirit. I'm still working, just it's through you. And he told them because they were available, maybe not able in our thinking. 
Maybe I've let this, on, let this out from time to time, but I don't think I personally, Kevin Davis, am the best shepherd. I have room for improvement. I wholeheartedly believe that, but I can tell you, and I'm being personal when I say this, and I'm talking about you, not the person next to you, each and every one of you. God's kingdom needs more shepherds, and I want you to take that personally. The harvest is plenty. The workers are few. Am I talking about more pastors? No. I'm talking about when the 11 disciples who were sheep with shepherd Jesus realized that though they still be a sheep of the King Jesus, they too, through Christ's power, could also become shepherds. I'm still a sheep of King Jesus. I'm still a voluntary sheep to a few pastors over me in my life. Yet I'm a shepherd. Friends, as your pastor, this community needs more shepherds. This church needs more shepherds. I cannot, nor should I, do this without you being shepherds. And some of you are shepherds, so yes, I mean it personally, but if you say, hey, I feel like I have a full plate, and I'm, I am shepherding, okay, you and Jesus got that figured out, continue to work through that. I'll tell you right now where I think many of you know I lack. <clears throat> I'm not the best visitor. That's why I'm doing coffee with Kevin. Like, okay, another opportunity for people to come and visit. But I'm not the best home visitor. I'm an introvert, and I'm just never the person to pick up a phone and say, hey, can I impose? Some of you have a way with words. You're wired differently. You're an extrovert, and you're welcoming, and you're inviting, and you have that magic ability to invite yourself somewhere and even be desired when you come at the same time. I would bore people to death talking about theology. You, you get enough of that on Sunday morning. And I would, uh, I'm not saying that I do not feel convicted in this area, and I'm not saying that I'll never work on my own drawbacks, but what I am saying is that God's kingdom needs more shepherds, and sometimes shepherding looks a lot much smaller than what we think the weight it might put on us. But whatever it is, if you step out of your comfort zone, if I step out of my comfort zone, and we say, Lord, I don't have the ability, but... But like Kevin is saying, maybe, maybe I can say to you, Lord, that I have the availability. Know this. Though it's scary, and though you're going to be doing more than just reading your Bible and praying every day and giving money, and you might go to more physically demanding work, know that you're joining the battle of a winning army. You're doing the work for a kingdom that's invincible, to whose victory is inevitable, and it might hurt because it's inflicted. Maybe it's not in-home visiting, but you know. You know what the Lord is laying on your heart. You know where He is saying in your own life, can you just please move from sheep to shepherd here? Can I just urge you without any apology for saying it, submit yourselves to that reforming affliction. Can you submit yourself to the trusted hands of God and say, inflict me here because I want to join you more personally in your work and what you're doing. I want to be part of the invincible, inevitable reformation of God's people in the world. And I know that part of that world is even in the little remote Woodland, Idaho. I'm not saying all of you be pastors, all of you be evangelists. I'm just saying, take ownership in the kingdom. And know... But though you think you're a sheep, there may be a sheep around you right now who have mistaken you as a shepherd. Take ownership of that. Be a shepherd of the kingdom and do what God is telling you to do.
Let's pray. Father, I, I confess to you that even though I'm a shepherd, there's, there's parts of me that's still sheep, and I, I need to redeem that as a pastor and take ownership and be more of a shepherd. But Father, I have a feeling that wherever we're at, no matter what walk of life, there are sheep in here that need, that it's time to be a shepherd. It's, it's time to step up our game. It's time to take ownership in the kingdom. Father, that we've been consuming, 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 and, and you're telling us, I know you can be available, and I want you to be producing, producing, producing. I want you to be nourishing other sheep. Wow, Father, some of us, we compartmentalize our lives so much, we, we think our relationship between you and me, or me and you, is just personal. Whenever Michael lays out the framework of a global movement, of a battle, of an army, of a war taking place, and you're calling us to the front lines. Maybe you're not calling each and every one of us to the proverbial front lines, but you're still calling us for active service. And if we've not been doing active service, would you convict today? Not because we want to see people grieved and, and angry or frustrated and, and feeling guilty and ashamed, but we want to see people convict and inflicted and purified into something more holy, something more useful for your kingdom. Because that is what will produce more and more of your light, more and more of your kingdom. So if people are hearing this, and if they feel convicted, do not let them walk away from that conviction. They can certainly walk away from here, but Father, bring that back to them each and every day. Remind them each and every day, I want you to be a shepherd. You're available. Trust me, you're available. I want you to be a shepherd. Have your way in people's hearts and lives with these words I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.